Good morning, Northbrook. I'm Melissa. I'll be doing the reading today. It is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 to 11. Open your Bibles, open your apps. The words will be on, behind me. Um, again, that's uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 to 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. All right, well, it's a joy to be with you. Ooh, there I am. Uh, joy to open God's word and see what he has for us this morning. Um, a couple, we're going to do a few things before we get started. Uh, one of the things that we uh, have done a bit as a church is we kind of stumbled into when uh, someone's moving or being sent out uh, to another place, we like to acknowledge that. We like to pray for them. Um, and uh, so Aaron and Kristen Chevalier, y'all can stay seated for a, sec- seated for a second. I'm gonna, we're we're going to pray for them. Uh, they are uh, going to uh, Restoration Church in Southlake. We can say, oh, okay. Um, and then um, they have moved closer there. Not quite Southlake. You know, they're not there yet. But... Um, <laughs> but uh, Maybe we'll get there. But they're moved closer to there. It's a, a, a great, uh, again, we have an embarrassment of riches in regards to churches that uh, are, are great churches. And so we're excited for, for what the Lord has for them. Uh, one of the things I was telling Aaron this, I didn't record it in these ways, but when we planted Northbrook, so when you're planting a church, people that say, hey, I'm in, are like a breath of fresh air. Uh, it's like, because you don't know if like, it's me and the family, we'll see what happens or how it's going to go, especially when you're in early days. And I, don't, they, I mean, they literally could have been the, I have no idea. Oh, okay. Um, I have no idea. Do you need it? Okay. Uh, I have no idea if they were like, they could have been like the first couple, but they were like one of the first couples to actually commit to like, hey, we're going to be a part of what God's doing uh, up in North Fort Worth. And so, and, and if you know Aaron and Kristen, they, they, they are a part. They, they are a part of when we were at the Paradox together, they serve, they're, they're present. Uh, they're, they're just uh, an incredible gift. And uh, it's one of those, uh, yeah, it'll be really sad. Uh, to, they'll, they'll leave a big gap because they have been such a, a sweet and encouraging part of what the Lord's done here uh, at Northbrook. And so, uh, but again, we want to acknowledge when people uh, leave and, and bless them on, on their way. And so uh, if, you, if y'all want to go ahead and, well, if y'all just want to gather around for your community group, I'm going to pray for them, pray for the Lord to bless them. And Kristen asked me in particular to pray for, they, um, you know, getting plugged in at Restoration, but they've actually started a uh, Bible study in their neighborhood uh, with a lot of their neighbors. And so they're excited about that missional opportunity. Uh, so I'm going to pray for them uh, in that way. And so, yeah, let's pray. Uh, Lord, Lord Jesus, you, uh, this is your church. 
These are, we are your people. You are the head. We are the body. And by your abundant grace and kindness, you have uh, brought together many local churches. And so uh, as people move and as people feel led and called, there's uh, different places for people to be a part of. And so as Aaron and Kristen have moved closer to restoration and are going to start going there, Lord Jesus, we just pray that you would pour out your abundant grace in, in this move. Uh, and relationships, and opportunities, and, and just you, that they would get more of you in the midst uh, of this transition. I, I pray in particular, as Kristen mentioned, just the, the Bible study that you have orchestrated in their neighborhood. God, would you use that to save? Uh, would you bring people out of darkness into the beautiful light uh, through the ordinary reality of just gathering in a home and, and opening your word and talking about it? Um, I pray for their little sweet little boys. I pray that you would bless them with uh, good friendships and good relationships and, and that this would just be a, a great place for them uh, to flourish. Not in a way that meets every comfort or desire they have, but in a place where they get much of you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys. Thank you all for letting me do that. Um, and so one other thing I did want to mention, obviously, as Randy said, this is our last week in 1 Peter. Hopefully, uh, this book has been an encouragement to you. If you've uh, not, uh, you know, uh, been around for a lot of that, don't worry. You'll, you'll get enough from 1 Peter even in uh, this morning. And then next week, we hop into a series, a four-week series on uh, lament. And, and here's what lament is about. If, if I could say it in two ways, one we don't do a good job of honestly acknowledging grief before God. Uh, this world is, I mean, Peter has told us this, this world is full of suffering. It's not the only thing this world is full of, but is a significant thing this world is full of. And, and the Bible is actually, uh, talks about it much better than we do. And so when we say the grace of lament, it's like the Bible gives us lament as a grace to navigate the hardness and suffering that we encounter in this life. And so we want to learn from the Bible in that way. But then also, and those are like the big hard things. But one of the other things we'll see, I think, from the Bible is that there is an aspect to lament that even if we're not going through some catastrophic season in our life, like lament can be this ordinary rhythm that we have in our life that helps us acknowledge the fallenness and brokenness of the world and biblically grieve it. And so if the Lord could use this series over the next uh, four weeks to help us grow in two, those two areas, uh, I feel like that would be an abundant blessing uh, for us as a church. And so we're, we're hopeful for that and we're looking forward to it. Uh, and, and that's why, again, the title, The Grace of Lament, because I think we can think of lament as just this dark cloud, uh, but the reality is lament is God's grace in the midst of the dark clouds of this life. Uh, and so hopefully uh, we can be together and, and learn from what God would have for us uh, through that series. And so uh, it, as this is our last uh, week on in First Peter, we're, we're going to see really a handful of different things uh, in uh, this passage that we're going to look at today. One, that God saves us, that he exalts us, that he sustains us through spiritual warfare, and that he will eventually bring us safely home. Uh, if, we, if we just boil it down to two things, we're going to see what God does and what we are called to do in light of what he has done. So we'll see both of those kinds of realities in this passage. And there's a lot, so let's just kind of jump in. Let's see first what God does. Look in verse 6 there in First Peter. Humble yourselves. Obviously, that's what we're called to do, but this is what God does. Therefore, under the mighty 
hand of God. And the mighty hand of God is, is really a phrase used throughout the Old Testament, especially in, in Deuteronomy, and it's really to describe the saving power of God. So, so Peter's using it shorthand when it says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Peter's using that phrase to describe God's salvation of his people. Uh, Deuteronomy 5.15 says it this way. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And so we see, actually, Deuteronomy, we see that phrase used out throughout all kinds of uh, different commands to Israel that, hey, you, you're called to do this, but remember that God has done this, that he saved you. You didn't save yourselves. There was nothing you could have done, but the mighty hand of God came and saved you from Egypt. And I think it's important for us to realize that what is most important about life, what's most important about death, what's most important about eternity has already been done and we didn't do it. We didn't do anything about it. Those are the most important things that have happened in regards to all of those things have already been done and they've been done by God's mighty hand. Everything God did to save Israel from Egypt, uh, even back then, still, as we know, pointed to what Jesus has done for us now. So obviously Peter is writing on this side of uh, the resurrection. So he's not just talking about Israel uh, being saved from Egypt. He's also talking about uh, the work of Jesus when he says uh, the mighty hand of God. He's talking about realities like we see in Colossians 1, 21 and 22. And you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds He's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So again, if we think about humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God, the mighty hand of God is God's saving power for his people from the beginning of time to the end of time, culminating in the, the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. That is the mighty hand of God. That's what we're called to humble ourselves before. And so that is the response. What has God done? God has saved his people. What is our response to what God has done? Is to humble yourselves. Um, I, many of you maybe have heard, familiar with the C.S. Lewis comment that we'll either in this life we can choose to bend the knee or in the next life we will have no choice but to bend our knee. That, that we humble ourselves now or we will be humbled then. Those are the responses to God's saving work in the midst of his people. That's what we are called to do. We admit our sin and our need, and we place our faith in Jesus. And if we can, the reality is here, we can do that now. We can humble ourselves and say, I'm needy. I need all that Jesus has done for us. Or we can not do that and continue to put our faith in something else, mostly ourselves. Those are, the, those are the two options. Uh, we humble ourselves before God's mighty hand or we continue to put our faith in ourselves. And I think one of the things as we think about humbling ourselves before the mighty hand of God, he's talking about salvation. And then in our salvation, um, you know, as we think about pride and humility in the life of the Christian, uh, one of the things I think we, we want to grow in humility but we don't want to grow in admitting how prideful we really are. And that's the only road to humility. Like, how, how, do, you, how do you want to grow? How do you want to, you know, remove pride from your life? Well, you have to find it. 
And you have to be willing to be honest about it. You have to confess it. And you have to be open to seeing it. Uh, And then we can grow by God's grace uh, in humility. The thing about pride is, man, it's just this interesting thing. So like in the life of the Christian, if we're, we've humbled ourselves before God, we've put our faith in him, we are, we are saved. Uh, and then there's just this thing like, and so we, we, we all know we're going to struggle with sin until we go on to glory. Uh, but pride is just this subtle sin, isn't it? Like a lot of sins come knocking at your door and you're like, I don't, I, I do want to do that, but I shouldn't do that. But there's no like, what is this? It's like, it's sin and you know what it is. But pride's so sneaky. It, it, it just like, you know, it doesn't come knocking at the front door. It's like a gas that kind of seeps into your house and, and tries to kill you slowly. Um, and, and you just, you, by, hopefully, by God's grace, when you realize it's there and, and, something, and something needs to be done. And I, there's this old Spurgeon quote. It's like, I don't know exactly how it goes, but it's just so true that, that pride is comfortable in any context. Like the poorest person can be pride that, prideful that they're dealt the worst hand. The richest person can be prideful that they have so much riches. The, the, the non-religious person could be prideful about how non-religious they are. The religious person could be prideful about how religious they are. There's no context in which pride doesn't find a good fitting and good you know, handles to, to grab a hold of our hearts and our lives and take us in a place that stands, as we read last week in Peter, that pride uh, stands, it puts us in opposition to who God is. Uh, and, and pride has a sneaky way of coming into our lives and finding uh, comfortable places uh, to hang out. But we are to humble ourselves, uh, not grow in pride, but grow in humility. Um, and I think one of, this is one of the reasons we need to be constantly in God's word. Like as we go to God's word, as we prayerfully read God's word, I'll I'll just say this. One of the ways that God convicts me and shows me my pride is through his word. It happened even just this week. I wasn't planning on it, wasn't trying to do it, uh, but this is what God did. I'm in uh, Luke a bit this week, and I read a passage that I have read countless times. Uh, Luke 18, 9 through 14. This is Jesus, and he says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed, thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector standing far off not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And personally, as I was just reading this, there was just two areas of my life where I was like, oh, no. You know, we all love the tax collector in this story. I was like, man, that, that guy's awesome. That Pharisee's a jerk. Uh, but then I was like, wow, I am that Pharisee. And these two areas where I felt so justified, where I could stand up and look down on someone else, um, and God humbled me um, and showed me my need. And we, we need to put ourselves under the, the waterfall of God's encouraging, convicting, helpful word. Uh, so, again, that, that we can see those nooks and crannies of our hearts and lives, those areas, those relationships, those encounters, those exchanges we've had where 
we thought, man, I nailed that one. And by God's grace, we read, like, oh, no, okay. Um, there, there is definitely something else going on there. Um, and that's what we need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And so we see that God saves with his mighty hand. We need to continually uh, walk in humility and grow in that as Christians. But then we see in verse 6 too that at the proper time, he exalts us. So just reading verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. And, and, and Peter, this exalting has this dual purpose. He's definitely talking about uh, in the end, uh, you know, uh, in the end of time that all Christians will be exalted. But it's also at this proper time that there is a, a dual meaning to it, that in this life there are things that God calls us to. God exalts us in. He holds us up for a particular task, that he has prepared good deeds for us, that we should walk in them, as uh, Paul says in Ephesians 2. Uh, that it's talking about both of these things. And I just think the fact that God does exalt us in this way, it, it kind of helps us with from two errors. One, thinking that we are actually not that important. Uh, we are actually so important that the creator and sustainer of the universe has thoughts and plans for our life. That's incredibly, you can't get more important than that. And some of us have this kind of tendency to think, man, our, our life and my role and my role in this world does not really matter. It's not really that important. And the Bible would, would say quite differently. You're actually quite important. Uh, one, you're just created in the image of God. That in and of itself gives you importance. But not only that, God has a, a desire for you and plans for you and hopes for you. That There's nothing that can make you more uh, important. And you should consider that. It's like, uh, I'm going to quote Francis Schaeffer uh, a little bit. He has this, uh, these sermons called No Little People and No Little Places. And it's so good. And, and that kind of describes the reality that there are no little people in God's economy. Like we, we think that, but, but God does not think that at all. Um, and sometimes we think that about ourselves. But then obviously the other error is thinking that we are too important. Listen to Francis Schaeffer here. We all tend to emphasize big works and big places, but all such emphasis is of the flesh. That we, we you know, sometimes we think, okay, our, our role is not that big of a deal, but sometimes we have an exalted view of ourselves that we can only be a big deal if we're in this particular role, doing this particular thing at work, in our home, or if this area of our life was put together, or whatever it might look like. We have this view of God's working, and it's only big works and big places, and we're often just not content with the place that God has exalted us to in this very moment. We think it's beneath us. One of the fiery trials we face is wanting God to move in a particular way much faster than he currently is. Uh, again, this is why Francis Schaeffer says that there is no little places. The, the, the marriage you're in, the family you're in, the friends that you have, the work that you're doing, there's no place that doesn't matter to God. But sometimes it doesn't matter to us. Um, and, and again, that's an over-exaltation of our uh, importance um, our tendency to view any place or circumstance uh, like that is a sinful tendency. What if God has exalted you to where you are at right now? He has. He has done that. Um, and why do we often connect God exalting us to doing big things for God? 
not good to, it's not bad to desire these things, but there's something, again, that pride is, is comfortable in so many different areas of our life, even in our ambition of doing things uh, for God. And why are we only content with those things? Um, it's a good thing to consider. And as we think about God exalting us, we, we respond to it in all kinds of different ways. Maybe you're nervous that God's going to expect too much of you. You want to kind of sandbag it and play it slow. Um, or maybe you're discontent and you think God is not making the most of all your gifts and abilities. And you would never say it that clearly, but it's what's going on in your heart uh, and mind. Either way, whatever that response is, verse 7 shows us what to do with that. So at the proper time, God's going to exalt this. And then verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So in salvation, we humble ourselves and then and we, cast our anxi- we cast our anxieties on him regarding uh, him exalting us at the proper time. God knows this life can be hard. He knows. He knows that. Again, maybe you feel like God has exalted you beyond your ability and you don't know what to do. You can cast those anxieties on him. Maybe you desire to be exalted in a particular way, but you haven't. Uh, you can cast those anxieties on him. Maybe you're bored with the lot you've been given or frustrated or discontent or sad. You can cast all of those anxieties on him. But even just the why can we do that? Because he cares for you. Because he cares that you're experiencing those very anxieties. You know, a lot of times we'll feel that anxiety and we'll just tell ourselves, just trust God. And we do. That's the place we need to get. We want to trust God. But God cares about why you don't trust him. He cares about why it's hard to trust him. He cares about the anxieties that you're experiencing that make that whole thing a little more complicated and difficult. Um, And we move so quickly to the trust because we forget, oh, he actually cares. He cares how this is affecting me. He cares how um, I'm sad, I'm frustrated, I'm lonely. He cares. Um, and, And so we can go to him with whatever anxiety uh, we are facing. We, we do not have a calloused, removed God. I mean, he saved us out of the depths of his love for us. We shouldn't disconnect that from the reality of our lives. He, he loves us through and in it all. He cares about how we're experiencing life. Um, again, we don't need to move too quickly to trust and forget that he cares. Um, God doesn't say, figure out your anxiety and then come to me. He says, you have it. Just cast it all on me. Just give it to me. You don't have to, you don't have to figure it out. Just keep giving to me. Keep letting me know I care. But we want to clean ourselves up before we get to them, even though we know we shouldn't. Um, and so he exalts us. And in that exaltation, we can cast our anxieties on him. And then there's another reality that reveals our neediness, our great need for everything God has done and its spiritual warfare. Look at, look at verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And so I don't know if you're asking this, but I just want to, I felt led to address this. When you read stuff like this, especially thinking about God's activity in the world, you might be led to ask some fundamental questions. One, why does God allow spiritual warfare? Why does God allow that? 
which comes from an even more fundamental question. Why does God allow evil at all? Where does that come from? What happened? Why, why is this going on? And here's the thing. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the depths of those answers. And to be honest with you, any good theologian that I read and listen to and enjoy tends to say that same thing. We tend to get wonky theology when we try to make things clear that, that aren't incredibly clear uh, in the scriptures. The reality, Deuteronomy 29, 29 is in the Bible for a reason. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. That, way, that we may do all the words of this law. I think of Romans eleven thirty three in a worshipful way is kind of saying the same thing. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. So those fundamental questions, I, I, I don't know the answers to those questions, but the Bible does reveal a lot about the evil in this world. And those are the things that, that God gives us to try to understand and navigate uh, this world that is full of evil. C.S. Lewis, again, he, he says this, that in spiritual warfare, I just started reading his screw tape letters uh, uh, again for the umpteenth time. And uh, one of the things he says in that is that we tend to have these two kind of struggles. Either we over-exalt the reality and the role of spiritual warfare in our life, or we pretend as if it doesn't exist uh, at all. Um, and, and even uh, secular, you know, unbelieving people that are humble. I think of like Jordan Peterson. The reality is like, man, there's, we just don't know so much about this world. <laughs> like we, we, there's, there's more that we don't know than that we do know. And we know a lot um, through science, through history, through all kinds of things, but there is so much we don't know. Um, and so even just a humble reality that there are things that go on that we cannot see and are unknown in spiritual warfare uh, is, is one of those realities. Um, and they are, obviously, as we even think about evil in the world, if we're humble enough, if we realize it, we know that evil is something that doesn't just exist outside of us, but it also exists inside of us as well, that we participate in evil, that we make evil decisions um, uh, as well. And, and even biblically, the, the, the Bible always talks about the world, the flesh, uh, and the devil, that there's evil that exists in the world. There's evil that exists in our own hearts and minds, and there's evil that exists in the demonic realm, and they always work together. Uh, it's really kind of unhelpful to try to, to separate them uh, because the Bible really talks about them uh, together. And again, we know that even from the beginning... What we can be sure about in regards to evil is even from the beginning, when sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, that God promised deliverance. So evil exists in the world, but we know we have a God that has conquered evil. There are things we can't know, but there are some glorious truths that we get to know and that we get to trust in. And so this verse exhorts us pretty clearly in response to spiritual warfare we need to be sober-minded and watchful. Peter's used these terms already throughout, that, that we need to be clear and thoughtful and understanding and actually have an eye to see it going on uh, in our lives and in the lives of people uh, around us. Are we, do, are we thoughtful? Do we have eyes to see? Do we think that, oh, this is a reality I actually need uh, to be mindful of? I need to have clear thinking about uh, spiritual warfare, what it is and what's happening. Um, do you realize this is a reality in your life, spiritual warfare? If it is, 
What in your life do you think the enemy might be trying to lead you toward? What do you think his goal is? What do you think his desire is? One of the things that God is doing in this passage is saying he is a roaring lion. He's revealing his ultimate hope, which is to devour you. I'm reading this uh, biography on uh, Winston Churchill, not to brag or anything, but uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's really good, uh, a really helpful biography. And one of the things that was clear that I, I, I didn't know uh, was that Winston Churchill was actually um, very aware and very clear about Hitler long before anybody else was. Um, and he spoke very clearly, very loudly, very, uh, uh, you know, in hindsight, very prophetically uh, about the evils that were potentially going to befall the world through uh, this man, and no one was listening. Uh, everybody was just kind of downplaying, and everybody was like being political, and like, oh, I'm not sure that's good for our votes right now if we go that direction. Um, and then obviously he proved to be right. What he was trying to do was make known the reality of the evil that was at hand. Um, and this is what the, the enemy wants us to not know that. I mean, Adolf Hitler is a great example. He, he downplayed. He, he spoke out of both sides of his mouth. He was doing hor horrible, horrific things while saying, you know, this isn't so bad over here to the wider world. And this is exactly what the enemy likes to do in our lives. Uh, and, and God's peeling back the court curtain and saying, he wants to devour you. That, that this thing that you're tempted with, the, the spiritual warfare in your life, because again, if we knew it was spiritual warfare, that's why we need to be watchful, need to be mindful. If we knew it was spiritual warfare, we'd probably run from it. If we're, we're all running from roaring lions. None of us are going up and like, hey, how's, how, how are you? Um, none of us are doing that to a roaring lion. We're all running and fleeing. And so when we get the curtain peeled back and like, oh, wow, this is something in my life that has the potential and desire to devour me, um, then, then we would flee. And so we need to be watchful and mindful. Again, is this present in your life? What might the enemy want to devour you with in your life? Some of that can be some helps into thinking, oh, this is an area I need to be watchful. This is an area I need to be mindful. And here's the thing, the, the enemy can take, you know, there, again, there's those sins that are knocking on our door that we know are clear, and there's those things in our life that aren't necessarily bad, but the enemy can take those and, and use them in our life in a way that is actually uh, sinful. So we need to be mindful and realize what is going on there. That's what God is trying to do. And then we need to resist him. That's what Peter exhorts us to, resist him firm in the faith. So once we have any insight into that, we need to use every ounce of resistance that we have. We need to stand firm against him. But it's also not, we don't have the victory here. I think about uh, Israel in Exodus 14 when Moses says, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. We're not conquering the devil. We're not conquering the enemy. We can't do any of that. But we can see his activity in our life. We can see what he's trying to lead us toward. And we can stand firm and say, Jesus, you are my only hope. You have conquered this enemy in my life. Help me stand firm in faith in you. Help me resist by putting my faith uh, in you. Help me turn from these things that the, the, the enemy's tempting me with, where he's wanting me to go, and help me go where you are wanting me to go. Uh, we stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. We see uh, the writer James say this, the same thing, that we, that we resist the devil by, by standing firm uh, in our faith. And then I, I love this addition here that maybe uh, we wouldn't naturally think about. Knowing that, and the, the rest of verse 9, knowing that the same kinds of 
suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That, that there's a camaraderie and even talking about spiritual warfare in our life and how the enemy is working or how we're feeling tempted or these areas where uh, we're being tempted to pride or sin or struggle. And uh, like there's a camaraderie, like Peter is saying, oh yeah, this is, this is going on. There, there's, there's actually a, a benefit to sharing these kinds of struggles with your brothers uh, and sisters in Christ. Um, so that when we see what the enemy is up to and we resist and stand firm or, or we're tempted and we fall into sin and we confess uh, and uh, repent, then there, there's something beneficial and helpful about sharing that with your brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a camaraderie, there's a faith, there's a help, there's an encouragement that actually comes into our lives from that. One of the devil's many tricks is just to isolate us. And Peter is saying, no, this should be a shared conversation about how this is going in our lives. And, and in that shared conversation, it actually leads to being encouraging and spurring one another on uh, in the faith. Uh, this is, this is what, how we respond uh, to spiritual warfare in our life. Again, why, would you, why do you tend to keep those things to yourself? Why do you not want to share those? Why do you, what's going on? How is the enemy tempting you uh, in those ways to stay isolated? And what would it look like to invite even one brother or one sister or someone else into those very areas? And, and when you think about hesitation there, you're like, oh, I don't know about that. You should be watchful. You should be sober-minded about that very thing. Is that a temptation of the enemy? Is, is that the Holy Spirit saying, no, you shouldn't share this with others? Or is that the enemy saying, no, you should stay. This is just between you and God. Don't worry about anybody else. Um, just be thoughtful, be watchful, um, and resist what he would want to lead you to. Um, I would encourage us, may we be a place where we can share these kinds of experiences with one another and grow in that kind of, uh, not just transparency, but vulnerability and love and encouragement of one another. That we're not trying to fix one another or make this perfect thing happen, but we can just walk with one another. Uh, and we can praise God for uh, what he's doing in each other's lives. What, what people love to keep silent, what the Holy Spirit do, just this miraculous work of us being a place where we can actually share and talk about those very things. I, I pray that. And so much of this life is growing in humility toward God, trusting in his plan for our life, resisting the devil, but here's the other reality. This life is also temporary. It's full of joy and sorrow, good news and bad news, but one day it will all end. And we see this in, in verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while. What a phrase, right? Just talking, talking about life. After you've suffered a little while. I, I hope that phrase helps you when you in life come upon suffering and struggle maybe being ridiculed for your faith or just the fiery trials of life, I hope that phrase will remind you to come back to 1 Peter and drink deeply of all that God has for you uh, in the midst of that. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, and strengthen, and establish you. And I think when we think about eternity, Peter is constantly pointing us to eternity. And there's, there's kind of two things that are true about the Bible's, you know, use of eternity. One, there, there is somewhat of the idea of delayed gratification. 
you know, that's useful in all of our lives. We're trying to do anything. Delayed gratification is almost always the bet to get there. Uh, and it's super helpful. Uh, but sometimes I feel like that's the only way we view eternity biblically, and that's not true. The, the Bible also points us to eternity to show that actually what we should be gratified in this life. Like that it, it points to eternity to train the, the, the taste buds of our soul that would actually be gratified in this life with eternal things. So it's not just, oh, well, man, this life is just suffering and in heaven it's going to be great. Um, it's, not, it's not just that. It's also, man, in heaven, what is most true about right now is actually going to be completely true uh, with uh, no veil that we're looking through anymore. And so we can take a cue from that and say, oh, those are where there is an eternal amount of gratification to be had even now. And, and Peter's, Peter uses eternity to motivate us 11 different times in this short little letter that he is constantly raising our, our heart and the eyes of our soul to look to uh, what's before us and saying, live in light of these truths. And so e even in closing, I, I just wanted to honor that thrust of, of Peter's book. And so I'm just going to read these verses over you. And pray that as, as we hear and as we consider God's word, as we consider uh, the eternity that awaits his people, that the spirit will just move and help and convict and again, kind of uh, begin to train us to actually find the most of our gratification in these very things. And again, not just in these big ways, but in parenting and in life and in work and in friendship. In the ordinary things of life, these eternal things exist. Um, and, and so may God's word, may the thrust of what Peter has to tell us, what God has to tell us through Peter, actually shape and form uh, these realities. So it starts in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. I'll go through these quickly. They'll be on the screen for you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Again, this says that we are born to a living hope in this life while we await the fullness of our salvation in the time to come. 1 Peter 1, 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you remember that when we preached on this, but God's talking about the faith that the Spirit bears in our life now will actually receive praise when we go on to glory in heaven. 1 Peter 1, 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What we think uh, should be informed by eternity. 1 Peter 2, 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What we do should be informed by eternity. 1 Peter 4, 4 and 5. With respect to this, they were surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Everyone will give an account to God. Christian, Buddhist, atheist, agnostic, pluralist, we will all give an account, and that should motivate us. First Peter 4, 7. 
The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. What we pray should be motivated by eternity. 1 Peter 4.13, but rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Our, our perspective on suffering should be informed by eternity because we will enjoy Jesus' glory for eternity. We can enjoy it now even in suffering. 1 Peter 5.1. I'm going to read verse 4 too. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And then verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Being an elder should be motivated by eternity. And then we get to two from our passage today. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. An eternal perspective leads to humility. And then finally, as we've already read it, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The Father in heaven will restore us, confirm us, strengthen us, and establish us because of Christ. Everything we most want in life right now, we will experience in eternity. And everything about eternity you are looking forward to can be tasted in this life, even now. And it will all come directly from God to you. Just consider, you will be fully restored. No part of your life will be left undone. Hmm. You will be fully restored. No part of your life will be left undone undone. You will be a complete wholeness because you will be with the one who has made you whole. You will be fully confirmed. You will not have to wonder what God or anyone thinks of you anymore. Can you imagine that? Because the confirming words of God has spoken over you will finally be fully realized and you'll be strengthened. Weakness will be no more because you will be with the one who is your strength. And finally, you'll be established. Life will not be shaky because you will be with the one who is your firm foundation. And even now, we find all of these because Christ is ours and we are his. Then this lead us to worship? This is why when... We see what God has done when we participate in what God is doing and when we look forward to what he will do. What else can we say but to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen.